From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Jives. And I'm Tracy McRae. When we think of vaccinations, we usually think of kids. But the truth is, there are important vaccinations for adults, too. On today's program, we'll learn more about adult vaccines, what you need, and when you need it, from a Mayo Clinic expert. We do a good job overall with childhood immunization because that's pasted in the exam room of every pediatrician and family. We need to do the same thing in medical care for adults that not only says what we should get when, but by medical condition or context. Also on the program, eggs, aspirin, and your heart. And we'll learn about the painful problem of kidney stones. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Tracy, between 50 and 100,000 Americans die each year of vaccine-preventable diseases like the flu, pneumonia, hepatitis C, diseases that they likely wouldn't have died of had they gotten vaccinated. For example, less than 45% of adults in this country actually get the flu vaccine. And there are several other vaccines that adults should be getting. Should. Should be. Be getting. Mm -hmm. The recommended adult immunization schedule has received a significant makeover for 2019. And the number of vaccines that adults should be getting will likely surprise a lot of people. Joining us to talk about adult vaccines and to give us an update on the flu season and another, yet another outbreak. Uh, and the new flu vaccine, too, that's in development, vaccine researcher and infectious disease specialist, Dr. Greg Poland. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Poland. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, Dr. Poland, we certainly want to concentrate on vaccinations uh, for adults because we know that there are a lot of vaccines that they should be getting and a lot of them aren't. But talk to us a little bit about this outbreak of vaccine-preventable diseases around the country. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it right now, we have an outbreak of influenza, as we do most years. This is a very serious Serious year, as was last year. We have pertussis every time during this uh, time of the whooping year. Whooping cough. Whooping cough. We have hepatitis A outbreaks. We have measles outbreaks. And we have mumps outbreaks. Every one of those five diseases we have safe and effective vaccines for. Do we know the mumps outbreak is, in, I think, in the Philadelphia area? And I was just looking at the, the schedule of recommended vaccinations and uh MMR, uh, measles, mumps, rubella, it says one or two doses, depending on the indication, if born in 1957 or later. Right. Does that mean that if you were born in, in 1957 or after that, you need two? Correct. You and, and, you and I had the disease. People that came after us uh, and yet are older, not in college, got one dose in childhood. The kids that are in college now should have had two doses of vaccine. Uh, so we know uh, that the uh, outbreak, the measles outbreaks around the country, uh, are related to the fact that these kids didn't get vaccinated. Correct. Do you think that's the, the same majority. thing with regard to the mumps outbreak? One thing that's a little different about mumps is, uh, A, I do think that many of them don't have documentation of two doses. But even if they do, of those three diseases you mentioned, mumps is the one that wanes with time. Oh, the, the immunity wanes. Yeah. And so what happens is you have waning immunity, and then you bring thousands of kids from all over the world together in one place. 
and boom, you have these outbreaks. But just like measles, I mean, mumps can be a serious disease, oh, right? Yes. Can't you get encephalitis you, from absolutely inflammation of deafness, the, yeah. sterility? I mean, it's uh, it's nothing to just pass off as a as a benign disease. We're lucky. We yeah. had it when we did and didn't have any of the complications. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this updated <clears throat> table. I mean, <clears throat> we actually, Dr. Shives printed it out for me. I mean, it's a whole list of, for yeah. adults, I'm so used to the well-child visits and making yeah. sure that my kids have got their shots. Now I've got one for me. Indeed. Uh, in fact, it's personalized in the sense of it not only says what we should get when, but by con- medical condition or context. So it says that if you have a certain chronic disease, then you should get this vaccine. Right. Or, uh, or in some cases should not should get not a certain type of vaccine. But what? the idea here, and, and Tracy, mm-hmm. you set it up just right. We do a good job overall with childhood immunization because that's pasted in the exam right. room of every pediatrician and family doctor. Mm-hmm. We need to do the same thing in medical care for adults. What has changed with this um, from 10 years ago? From 10 years ago, um, a number of new vaccines. Mm -hmm. So one would be a new shingles vaccine that is superior to the one that we had previously, a new two-dose vaccine. That's Shingrix. That's Shingrix. Uh, We have a new hepatitis B vaccine that didn't work very well in adults and took three or more doses. Now we have one that works in Virtually everybody, two doses, one month apart. HPV, human papillomavirus vaccine, we now have and is recommended. And in fact, women now up to the age of 45 can get this vaccine. Well, I didn't see that because on the chart it says uh, up to 26 for HPV. It's a footnote. Oh, okay. And that's both (laughs) men and women. Because it's not routinely. Yes, men well, and women. well, for reasons that I disagree with, what you'll see for men is that up to age 21, mm-hmm. and I think they should get it just as women up to age 26. This is not a disease of women. This is a disease of sexually active people. Okay, got it. And the other thing about Shingrix is that's for people over age 50. Correct. Right. Yes. And you, the Shingrix is much more effective than Zostavax. Yeah. The Zostavax immunity would wear off over time. Yeah. You've generally had somewhere between four and seven years protection. This vaccine's been tested out to nine years with no significant waning of that immunity. You know, I also found it interesting that uh, when you're an adult. Um, 19 or above, there's two pneumococcal vaccines that you that you should get. There's hepatitis A, there's hepatitis B, there's two meningococcal vaccines yeah. that you need, and also haemophilus influenza type B. So, so just to make a, a, a careful point about that, is that the meningococcal is meant for younger people or people who are in a context where they're at risk. So you and I would not get meningococcal vaccine. But if you were in the laboratory working with this bacteria or you were going to go to Southwest Asia to the Hajj, then you would be at risk and we would talk about that. But it would not be a routine vaccine for people in their 40s and 50s and 60s. All right. Yeah, interesting. And the pneumococcal vaccines, too. If you had a chronic medical condition, we'd give it starting at the age of 18. But otherwise, it's not routinely given until people get to age 65. 
Now, who's supposed to keep track of all this? Is your, <laughs> it's complicated, uh, isn't it? It is. It's extremely yeah. complicated. So, I mean, particularly if you moved and had one physician in one place and then went to a different physician someplace else in the country. I mean, how do you keep this all straight? Because individuals don't do it. Yeah, Tom, you're exactly right. So we sort of depend on three things. One, people are given an immunization card. Two, they go to the pharmacy sometimes to get, for example, a flu vaccine or a tetanus uh, booster. And three, the primary care doctor that's giving it. And sometimes, it depends on the state, there are computerized statewide registries that do it. Despite all of that, my most frequent uh, experience is I ask always about vaccines. I don't know. I can't what find you do. It. Exactly. I can't find it in the registry, so I don't really know what they've done. And so uh, oftentimes I find I'm having to give a vaccine, and I'm not really sure, did they get it or did they not get it? But I err on the side of caution. I think the electronic medical record should help. It does help. you? It definitely does. When uh, patients come here to Mayo Clinic, for example, I can click on a button and I can see every vaccine they've had here. Now, if people want to look at this table and uh, figure out how many of these they have or have not had, yeah. uh, you can go to cdc.gov and search immunizations. We are with Mayo Clinic vaccine expert, Dr. Gregory Poland. He's one of the world's experts on vaccines. And actually. he's right here, <laughs> right here with us. So tell us about the flu season. How did we do this year? And I guess it's really not over yet. Huh? No, it's not over yet. And it's a bad year, Tom. Really? Oh, yeah. Um, we went from in the beginning of the year to an H1N1, that's a type of influenza, to we are now into an H3N2 season. That's the worst one, and we usually end up with an influenza B tail to the season. So far, it's estimated that about 400,000 Americans um, have been hospitalized as a result of this. Somewhere around 25,000 Americans have died. Um, this is a bad, rough year. The and for, problem is, I should just say for the folks who are listening and say, what did you just say? 25,000 people died. Explain what that encompasses. What that means are people who had influenza and either died of influenza, which is not as common as dying from the complications right. of that infection. Pneumonias, they get uh, a heart attack or a stroke triggered by this. They end up in the hospital or the ICU. 90% of those deaths, I should say, are in people 65 and older. You know, I'm over 60. I mm -hmm. consider myself healthy. But the fact of the matter is once you cross that magic threshold, your immune system is weaker and you are at increased risk of complications. We've had so far in 2019, I think it's 17 children die from influenza. You know, those families are forever changed. I bet if I could talk with them, they would give anything to go mm -hmm. back and give that child a flu vaccine. It is recommended in the U.S. for every American age six months and older. Um, how did the vaccine work this year? I mean, were you pretty so, accurate in your prediction? Yeah, no? you know, you might remember we talked earlier, and uh, I, I want to make a careful distinction here. So it's about, depending on the age group you look at, 30 to 50% effective. That doesn't sound too good, no. does it? But that's because of how they talk about it. By effective, they mean, did you get symptoms of influenza? That's not why we give the vaccine. That's not what the focus should be. We give the vaccine 
yes, we hope we prevent symptoms, but to prevent the complications. So I had somebody say, well, I got the flu vaccine and I got the flu. And I said, so it worked. (laughs) And they said, what do you mean? And I said, you didn't get a complication, didn't get pneumonia, you're not on a ventilator, you're not in the ICU, you weren't hospitalized and you didn't die. It worked. So uh, really, now I, that's a, an interesting and something that everybody I don't think understands right. and everybody should know right. is that even if you get the flu, if you've had the vaccine, you're less likely to develop a complication. Absolutely. In fact, the data... No matter what kind of, what type of flu you get. Well, you know, the closer the match to the vaccine, the better. But okay. careful studies done year after year have shown that we prevent about 70 to 90% of deaths prevent about 70% of the hospitalizations. So these are so-called infection-permissive vaccines. There's not a vaccine I can give you that causes um, sterility against the virus. Can't happen. It won't happen. That's not how these vaccines are made. What they're made to do is generate an immune response so that you don't have an overwhelming viral replication in your body and that virus overwhelm your ability to resolve or cure itself of that. And uh, let's mention again the importance for people over the age of 65. Yes. There's two uh, vaccines that they should uh, get or ask for. Yeah, there, tell there, us about there are really again. three, that, three? Are, that are useful for people over the age of uh, 65. And in no particular order, I would uh, characterize them this way. There's the so-called high dose, four times what you get in the standard dose. The second newer one is an adjuvanted vaccine. That is a chemical added to boost the immune system. The third one for which there's a little less data is um, a recombinant vaccine. So this is a flu protein made in caterpillar cells <laughs> that's harvested and uh, has shown increased efficacy over the standard vaccine that a younger person would get. See, we have to have you on periodically because the last time you were here, which was not that long ago, we didn't know about number three in the yeah. caterpillars. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is that the new one that we referred to in the opening of our script? No, the newest, uh, the newest vaccine that you were talking about, which is a universal vaccine, is not yet licensed. But a lot of work going into the idea, could we create a vaccine where we wouldn't have to give it every year? Influenza virus, the best way to put it is to say it is a promiscuous pseudo-species, meaning in the time we've been talking, trillions of new influenza viruses have been created by nature. Fortunately, most of those cannot replicate, don't go anywhere. But in this season, within this season, the virus is mutating and changing. So when this H3N2 virus, which is circulating right now, when it started, it was a very good match with the A Singapore virus that's in the vaccine. In just the last month or two, it has started to mutate so, so that the vaccine that we have will be slightly less effective as that virus mutates more and more. The other thing that uh, would be worth talking about is a brand new influenza antiviral drug that has been developed. Was uh, I think it was released in November. The beauty of this is it's one dose, one time, with very high cure rates, very fast resolution to having no symptoms. But here's the kicker. You have to be treated within 48 hours of those symptoms, ideally 24 hours. That's hard to do, but up to 48. After that, 
probably not effective. So you have to be paying very close attention you to your to symptoms. Know your body. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a lot of people don't. No, you're yeah. right. So it's a one dose. One dose. As opposed to what would we have before? Tamiflu. So, so how many antivirals are there out there? Well, from, from the oral point of view, there are several. There's this new drug, Biloxivir. There's Tamiflu. There's Zanamivir, which is an inhaled one. There's a set we don't use anymore because of high resistance. And then there's an IV preparation that we give people in the hospital. You have to take it within 24 or 48 hours of the onset of symptoms. Right. And that would be fever, aches and pains, headache. Sore throat, that combination of things. So the typical way that influenza hits is you're feeling fine. And an hour from now, man, you have a fever. You are exhausted. Your throat is sore. And then there's some permutations within that. What about these killer T cells? Yeah, well, killer T cells are what we hope to generate with something like a universal flu vaccine. So the idea there is to make the vaccine against the part of the virus that we don't see mutation Mm. in. So even though one part of it that I've described keeps mutating, the so-called stock part of it doesn't mutate. And it develops these T cells that can identify and kill the virus. So when you say you're in a universal vaccine, you're talking about a vaccine that would be effective against every type of flu. That's the idea. The thing yeah. I would <laughs> add is, um, because people have misperceptions about this, the flu ain't over yet. Mm-hmm. If you have not gotten your flu vaccine, go get it. This end of the year, I think, is going to be a bad year. In the spring. Yes. Wow. And if you do get it within 24 or 48 hours, you get a Biloxivir. <laughs> there pill. you go. Yeah. And when you say, uh, does it just shorten the duration? I mean, it doesn't cure. It, it, uh, it reduces the viral titer very quickly so that the time to resolution of symptoms is very fast. And it prevents complications because of lowering that viral titer. All right, so the important thing to know is if you're an adult, there's lots of vaccines that uh, you should get. And it's easy to find out where to get that information. You just go to cdc.gov and search immunizations. Everything you should know about adult vaccinations and an influenza update. Vaccine expert, infectious disease specialist, Dr. Gregory Poland, thanks so much for being with us. Always great to have you. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, heart hot topics. What you need to know about eggs and aspirin when it comes to heart health. And later on in the show, tips for how to prevent kidney stones. And now with the latest health and medical news, here's Vivian Williams. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Teens in the U.S. continue to experience increased rates of depression and anxiety, resulting in a rise of self-harm and death by suicide. Technology and social media may play a role, according to a recent study. Dr. Angela Matke, a Mayo Clinic pediatrician not involved in the study, helps explain the connection. Computers, laptops, smartphones all play an important role in the lives of our teens. Dr. Matke says teens are using technology to learn in the classroom and out of the classroom. They're using it to collaborate and connect on projects. But it's outside the classroom where too much social media may lead to social problems. Dr. Matke says kids learn to become passive engagers. She says they're watching everyone else's Instagram, but they're not engaging, and so they're losing out on that social connection. Electronic screens also can disrupt sleep, and a lack of good sleep can result in a depressed mood, moodiness, and irritability. 
If kids are spending a lot of time on their cell phones or screens, Dr. Matke says it can affect the hormones in their brain via the blue light that comes off of these screens. So Dr. Matke offers a few tips. Limit recreational screen time to two hours a day. Encourage shutting screens down at least an hour before bedtime. Set a rule of no screens in the bedroom. And in other news, tennis. It's one of the healthiest sports you can play, but that doesn't mean there aren't risks. Dr. Sanj Krakar, a Mayo Clinic orthopedic hand and wrist surgeon, says tennis can be quite rough on the wrists. He says he sees a lot of tennis injuries, especially in younger patients. He says there are two main causes of most tennis wrist injuries. Some are poor mechanics, and some have to do with the wrong equipment. Dr. Kakar says it's common for young children to have wrist injuries from using rackets and tennis balls that are too big or heavy for them. More commonly for adults, injuries come from mechanics issues. He says one of the most common injuries that he sees, especially with the double-handed backhand or the single-handed backhand, is injury to the ulnar side of the wrist. A bad swing can put too much pressure on certain ligaments, causing significant pain and soreness. Treatment can range from simple rest to hand and physical therapy to corticosteroid injections to, in the worst cases, surgery. But he says your best option is to avoid injuries in the first place. That means taking lessons with a licensed professional about proper technique and using proper equipment. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. You know, Tracy, for decades, doctors have been telling men over 50 and women over 60 that they should be taking a baby or a low-dose aspirin to prevent heart attacks and stroke. But just a couple of weeks ago, the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association scrapped that recommendation. They changed their minds, at least in part. Keep you on your toes, that's That's why. And there's more recent news on heart health. A new study says that mm, maybe eggs aren't as good for you as we first thought. The more that you eat, the greater your risk for coronary artery disease, stroke, heart failure, and premature death. But I really love eggs, so that's trouble. It's time for a conversation with our Mayo Clinic Heart Specialist. With us in studio is cardiologist Dr. Stephen Kopetsky. Welcome back, Dr. Kopetsky. Thank you. Dr. Kopetsky, good to have you here. It seems like doctors change their mind a lot. (laughs) Where are we now with regard to a recommendation for low-dose aspirin for prevention of heart disease? Well, Tom, it's difficult. You know, aspirin is a new drug. It only came out about 1830. (laughs) We haven't had time to test it. That's right. What has happened is something I never thought I'd see, and that is now the American Heart American College recommendations are a red box, a class three, do not do. Do not give aspirin to those over 70 routinely. Do not give aspirin to those with bleeding problems routinely. So you have to ask them about it. And so what has happened is that uh, you need to assess someone's risk for heart attack and stroke. If it's high, also ask them about their risk for bleeding. Do they have bleeding problems? And if you're a high risk for a heart attack or stroke, no risk of bleeding problems, then you may be benefited. However, to give everybody across the board in these groups an aspirin, we have to treat about 250 people to prevent one heart attack or stroke. But we treat 200 people to cause a major bleed. Okay, so what you're saying, that for certain individuals, the risks outweigh the benefits of a low-dose aspirin every day. Right. What about people who have had a history of heart disease? There is no question those people benefit okay. from aspirin if they can take it. Again, if they've had bleeding problems, you know, they may not be able to take it. But we have other options to do also. What's a bleeding problem? Well, a bleeding problem is uh, if you ever had an issue with gut bleeds, you know, mm-hmm. you've had blood in your stool, 
whatever. If you've had problems where you threw up blood, if you've had problems um, where you've had a bleed in your eye or something like that, obviously. Uh, this can happen with people that take a lot of, uh, like, over-the-counter pain remedies. That could be the type of problem you could have. And that's something we have to ask about. Um, I saw an ad over the weekend uh, when I was traveling, and it was the back in the back of a, a major newspaper, and it was a Bayer ad. And it said, aspirin continues to be the cornerstone treatment for the prevention of secondary cardiovascular events. What exactly does secondary mean, and do you agree with that? Yeah. Well, secondary means that you have had some heart disease or some arteries that were narrowed. You may have had a stroke. You may have had a bypass, a stent, something like that. They had to bypass your leg artery because it was narrowed. So that's secondary. There's no longer risk for disease because you have the disease. In those patients, uh, the ad is correct. They would be benefited by having something that will inhibit the platelets, which are cells in your blood, about one-tenth the size of a red blood cell, that their job is to clot. And if you can, you can benefit by taking that if you don't have risks of bleeding. All right, so when you say a, a history of previous heart disease, are, is this just heart attack is what we're talking about, or, or what else might classify as heart disease? Yes, and that's finally been codified or put down a list so we can all know exactly what it is. And the FDA and the American College and American Heart have all agreed. And it falls into three areas. One is the heart. If you've had a heart attack, if you've had a stent, if you've had a bypass, if you've had a CT scan that showed you had a narrowing of an artery or an angiogram, now so that, that would be calcification in that, the artery? I was going to say that's that not calcification. Okay. <laughs> that doesn't count. Or it could be that you've had a stroke, the arteries to the head, you've had a stroke, you've had an ultrasound that showed a you know, plaque or, or buildup of narrowing of the arteries to the head. That would count. The third group are the ones that have had the arteries that aren't the head or aren't to the heart. That's the rest of the body. It could be the aorta, which is the large blood vessel, about an inch or so in diameter that runs from our heart down to our legs. Uh, people that smoke tend to get enlargements of those, and so you've had an aneurysm, it's called, or a, a bypass of one of the leg arteries or narrowing. Sometimes you go in, your doctor may hear a bruy, which is a, a sound like a finger or the end of a hose. Psh, psh, psh. That could be a narrowing of the artery, too, that would count. What about uh, someone who has been taking aspirin? They haven't really had a, a problem with it, but they have no history of, of heart disease, and they decide they want to stop taking it. Isn't there some increased risk of uh, a heart attack or some other complication if you just all of a sudden stop taking it? Yeah, there does seem to be clearly a risk. And the higher your risk, the higher the risk of having a problem, meaning if you've had a stent placed or had a bypass or a heart attack in the past, you're clearly at risk if you stop it. And you know, I would talk to your primary care provider about that before you do. All right, let's talk about eggs, <laughs> because I think this story just kind of waxes and wanes over the years as they go right. by. Like, yeah. are eggs good or eggs bad? And yeah. it's probably truth is somewhere far in between. Yes. Eggs, nature's perfect food. Mm-hmm. A lot of protein in the white, a lot of fat in the, in the yolk. Why are they well, steadily saying they're not good? Well, the studies on eggs, uh, any study on any food product or anything that's over the counter for that matter, it's very hard to randomize, meaning say you take an egg and you don't take an egg because you can buy them in the store and eat them and many of the things we eat have sure. eggs in them. So what have we found? Well, the average American eats about three or four eggs when I say egg now, that's the whole egg with the yolk and the white a week. And their risk is of a heart attack is here. So it's one. Mm-hmm. But if you eat a couple eggs a day, your risk goes up about 
Now, we know the Mediterranean diet studies, which we are big advocates of here, uh, in that study they actually suggested only three or four egg yolks a week. So I have an egg every day, but I cut out half of the yolk, Mm -hmm. and so I put something else in there, spices or whatever. So I'm getting about three or four egg yolks a week, which is about the average American's intake, and that's probably okay as long as I'm not eating a lot of other saturated fat or cholesterol. Now, the problem is that every egg yolk has about almost all of your daily allotment of cholesterol, 200, 250 milligrams of cholesterol per yolk. And the old studies didn't show much damage to eating eggs. Why? Because Americans eat so much other cholesterol that the egg yolk, adding it to it, really wasn't that bad of a thing. Where do we get it? Well, we get the other saturated fat or cholesterol in you know, meat, you know, dairy products, uh, hamburgers, things like that. So you've got to be careful. If you want to have the egg, cut down the other saturated fat or cholesterol you're eating. So this new analysis from Northwestern University that is the basis for our conversation, it said that each additional 300 milligrams per day of cholesterol, and you said there's, what, 250 milligrams in an egg, 250? Each 300 milligrams per day additional increases the risk of cardiovascular disease, that's heart attack and stroke, by 17% and increases the risk of premature death from any cause by 18%. Yes. You agree? I I agree with that. And, you know, uh, death is inevitable, but premature death is not. And so (laughs) I think what we're hearing, the message we get over and over again about the aspirin, about the eggs, whatever, is live your life in a good manner. Have healthy habits. You know, you can't expect to take an aspirin and have it negate all the other bad habits you do. And you can't say, well, I'm just not going to eat this egg yolk, but I'll eat everything else that's bad for me. It's not that either. You've got to really put it all together in a package. All right. Well, the good advice. Mayo Clinic cardiologist, Dr. Stephen Kopetsky, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. If you've ever known somebody who had and passed a kidney stone, they may have told you that it's the worst pain they've ever had. Kidney stones are hard deposits made up of salts and minerals that form inside your kidneys. Why do they form? Do we know? Well, we're going to find out. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) Why do some people have them and others don't? How are they treated? And most importantly, can they be prevented? Joining us in studio is a kidney stone expert, the chair of the Department of Urology at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona, Dr. Mitchell Humphreys. Welcome to the program, Dr. Humphreys. It's nice to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Yeah, good to have you in Rochester. It's nice to be here, especially with the sun shining and warm weather. Oh, yeah, this is <laughs> almost like Phoenix, isn't it? <laughs> Just about. So why do people get kidney stones? So uh, people do get kidney stones for a variety of reasons, and it can be dietary, it can be environmental, or it can be genetic. Um, what we do know about kidney stones is if you think about it, the kidneys are just a filter. They filter a quarter of your blood supply every minute. So the way that that filter works and takes care of minerals and waste, that's going to increase your risk of stones. So some people may filter more calcium. Some people may filter more salts. If people are dehydrated, they've got risk. If you've got family members with stones, you've got a two-time full increased risk mm-hmm. of getting kidney stones. So it can be inherited. So um, you don't just get your good looks from your parents anymore. You can also get stones from them as well. So there's a variety of reasons that lead to kidney stones. More common in males than females? 
So the early epidemiology data was it was three to one more common in uh, males than females. But if you look at the contemporary literature in 2018-19, now the ratios are starting to even out where females are just as lucky as men uh, when it comes to kidney stones. Oh, there you go. So lucky. What about diet? Any Does that have anything to do with it? Yeah, so diet has a big impact on kidney stones. Perhaps one of the biggest risk factors is not enough fluid intake. So what we tell people is we want you to drink enough. We don't care what you drink, although there is some data to suggest what you drink is important. But the most important thing is volume. Think of stones as a chemistry. The more diluted your urine is, the harder it is for crystallization or mineralization to occur. So you really want to drink more fluid, flush that system out. The goal is about two and a half liters a day. The second most important thing of kidney stones is salt. Because when you eat salt and your kidney filters salt, when your kidney filters that salt, it pulls calcium with it, and that increases your risk of stones. And if you take medications to prevent kidney stones, that salt will essentially inactivate those medications and make them not worthwhile. So unfortunately, salt is in everything we do. Not only does it make things taste better, but it's in preservatives, anything that comes out of a bag, box, can, um, even vegetables are frozen in salt water. So it just means raising awareness. You said two and a half liters of fluid a day. So the mm-hmm. people who say you should drink seven to ten glasses of water a day, they're right? Depends, right? So if you spend a lot of time talking like I do, you're going to lose a lot of fluid just by talking. Or if you work out a lot, you're going to lose a lot of fluid by sweating. We care about what you actually make in the plumbing system. So we care about how much you pee. So if seven to eight glasses a day is enough for you to pee two and a half liters, then that's adequate. If it's not, you're losing what we call insensate water loss from talking, from exercise, then you need to up your game and increase your fluid more. Now, that recommendation is more for people that have already had kidney stones. For people that don't have kidney stones and don't have a risk of kidney stones, you don't necessarily have to push those fluids unless you're in a dry, arid environment, say Phoenix, for example. Um, Our goal there is to be over two liters. The only thing that I know about kidney stones is that they're a lot of pain, very, very painful. What are other symptoms of kidney stones? Yeah, so one big thing is pain. Obviously, that's the first telltale sign. Sometimes kidney stones can cause blood in the urine, usually blood that you can see. Sometimes people don't know that they have kidney stones, and they go to their doctor, and their doctor says, well, you have blood in your urine, but it's microscopic, blood you can't see. And then they get imaging tests, and that reveals a kidney stone. So not all kidney stones have symptoms, but when they do have symptoms, it typically occurs with pain, blood in the urine, you may get nauseated, you may feel sick to your stomach, uh, among other things. And the pain typically located in the flank? So typically it's in the flank and the back, depending on the location of the stone. So as the stone travels from the kidney and down the narrow tube that drains from the kidney to the bladder called the ureter, the pain may change in location and character. So that pain may start in the back, it may start to radiate around the stomach, it may start to radiate into the thigh, and then it can radiate into the groin. And as that kidney stone gets ready to pass into the bladder, those same symptoms may present with urinating more frequently, urgency, feeling like you need to get there, feeling like you can't empty your bladder when you go, that means that that stone is low in that urinary tract, hopefully ready to pass. You intimated that the way to diagnose these is with some kind of imaging. What kind is that? How do you make the diagnosis? So typically today, the most common kind of imaging that we use to diagnose stones is just a CT stone protocol. So it's not the full CT scan, so we've come up with ways to reduce the radiation from a CT scan. And so we use a CT scan because that essentially, if you think about it in television terms, is our high-definition image. 
there's other ways of doing it. You can get it with just a plain x-ray. So maybe you don't need a whole CT scan, and so you can get almost a chest x-ray just of the kidneys and the bladder to localize stones. Sometimes the imaging there is a little harder to interpret because you can have bowel gas and other things that can um, influence the imaging. Also, really, we're really starting to push ultrasound imaging, especially for women when they're pregnant. We don't want them to have radiation, so we use ultrasound a lot of times to make sure that they're making urine. You can actually watch the urine jets, and you can see um, the stone, and there's some newer techniques that we use in ultrasound. But I'd say today the standard would probably be CT scan. How do you treat them? And do most people pass them? So the, the the data on passage depends on the size and the location. So a stone less than four millimeters, they have a 50 to 80% chance of passing that stone within 40 days. So I like to say if you have a small enough stone, we'll give you a month to try and pass it as long as it's not too symptomatic for you with some medication. We have medications that can dilate the ureters and make it easier to pass the stone also to help with pain. Um, and if they don't pass it in a month, then chances are they're probably not going to pass it. And so that's where we delineate when they need something more advanced. The ways that we treat stones go everywhere from just taking medications. Um, there are certain stones that you can take medications that will actually dissolve those stones, like uric acid stones. You can dissolve them so you don't need any treatment. There's other stones that require surgery, and that surgery can either mean using tiny telescopes, ureteroscopes, and lasers to break them up. Sometimes we have to use an instrument the size of a pencil to go through the back called percutaneous nephrolithotomy to remove large stones that way. Sometimes we can just shock the stone using sound waves to break up the stone and make it into small pieces. If you have gotten them once, you're more likely to get them again, though, correct? Correct. Most people get their first kidney stone actually when they're between 40 and 60. And that's just how our kidneys change, how our filters change, how our diets change. Once you have one stone, the chance of you getting another stone within a year is about 15%. The chance of you getting another stone in three to five years is 35 to 40%. And the chance of getting another stone within 10 years is 50%. Um, so stones, unfortunately, sometimes can be quite the annuity, but not the one you're probably looking for. If you do pass a stone uh, or it's removed in one way or another, is it important to know what kind of stone it is? Absolutely. So there's a whole bunch of different types of kidney stones, and knowing what that stone is made of and how much of each mineral composition tells us a lot about how that kidney is functioning and how that filter is. And so that gives us valuable information to target so that we can come up with an individualized program specific to that individual with the stone to help prevent stones in the future. All right, kidney stones, fairly common. They can be quite painful, as we've heard. A good treatment is available. Prevention is key, and it's important to know what kind of kidney stone you have. We've been talking to Dr. Mitchell Humphreys, Chair of Urology at Mayo Clinic's Arizona campus. Dr. Mitchell Humphreys, great to see you. Nice to have you on the program. Thank you so much for having me. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.